Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Tastatinius and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is my friend, top-notch IP lawyer, Alexis Crawford-Douglas of K&L Gates. Hi, Alexis. Hey, John. So joining us today is another author. Seriously? It's Bush League, Alexis. Well, well done. Why can't why can't we just have a celebrity on again? It's a draw. They're fun. What about like a I don't know, like a like a June Diane Raphael? John. She's a triple John. threat. Hold on. Actress, comedian, screenwriter, slash great. Her work in HBO's Flight of the Concords right, right. was groundbreaking. I mean what? John, done. What? What? Done. What? Our guest today actually co-wrote the book. With June Day and Raphael. Seriously? Yeah, and she's pretty amazing in her own right. Well, why didn't you say something? We're on the air. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. It's not your fault. It's obviously Jen's fault. She's the executive producer. <sighs> she should prepare us better. All right, you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's start. So, Alexis, it's March, Women's History Month, and we're joined today, appropriately enough, by Kate Black, co-author of Represent, the Woman's Guide to Running for Office and Changing the World. Kate is currently a policy advisor in the federal government and was formerly the chief of staff and vice president of research at Emily's List, the largest resource for women in politics. She served as executive director of American Women, a nonpartisan research organization working to uplift the voices of women and issues they care about. She has helped elect female candidates up and down the ballot and across the country. And her book, co-authored with Triple Threat, albeit oddly absent, June, Diane, Raphael, Jen, has garnered impressive attention, including a review by Hillary Clinton, who calls it a wonderful resource for women thinking about taking a leap into politics. Kate, welcome to At The Bar. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So let's start at the beginning. Why did you write this book? How did June get involved? What's her phone number? Well, June and I uh, first met, we first got in touch after the 2016 elections where, you know, I think like so many people, men and women alike, um, you know, felt like they could do more after that election. We saw millions of people take to the streets. We've seen, you know, right after that, we saw um, a historic number of women run for office, actually. And, you know, June and myself, you know, really felt like, um, we wanted to do more for our community. We wanted to basically show up a little bit more. And uh, June herself actually thought about, you know, running for office. Uh, she woke up after the election and thought, well, if that guy could do it, um, having never run for office before, maybe maybe there was room for me. Maybe there's a seat that I could take. You know, am I not just as qualified? And she looked for a resource. She looked for a book. Um, that could kind of start her on her path uh, to running for office. And, you know, the book doesn't really exist. And she found her way to me at Emily's List at the time. And for my part, um, you could imagine after 2016, having worked to uh, elect Hillary Clinton, um, I was feeling, you know, those were some dark days. And um, June kind of pitched me on this idea for an accessible 
how-to guide for any woman, Republican, Democrat, Green Party, Independent, whatever, uh, to run for office. And three years later, that's what's on the shelves today. So we're really excited about it and really proud that it's out there. That's awesome. It does seem like an amazing resource. I haven't seen anything else like it. And I feel like it's inspiring, too, uh, for you know, women maybe who hadn't even thought about running for office before, like myself, (laughs) reading it. And then you're like, oh, maybe I could. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the really, the beautiful, well, no, you totally could. Um, (laughs) But the beautiful thing about the book is it really is that first ask. You know, I know through research um, about why women run, why we don't run, what holds us back, why we're good leaders, that it does take women more asks to run. We're just not mm-hmm. asked or recruited to run at the same frequency, at the same rate as men are. And so you have to ask women over and over again to, to think about running for office. And this book is really that first request. This is, you know, whether you're buying it for a friend or your mother or sister or your coworker or your boss, um, or you're buying it for yourself. It's really uh, empowering and engaging to say to someone, hey, I think you should think about running for office. Imagine what right. that could do if more women thought about it that way. Um, it's pretty pretty special. And I think the book does a good job at making it feel like something that you could take on. In all the things that women already do, we think leadership should be a part of that. And this book, I think, helps um, it seem like an achievable goal. Why is that? Why is it important for women to run for office? Oh, it's so important. Let me tell you. So (laughs) women, you know, right now make up over 50% of this country. Um, We are a majority of the population. We are, in fact, the largest voting bloc. Um, Yet we make up just barely a quarter of the seats in Congress. You know, actually, we just reached a milestone for the number of women that are in the Senate. And when I say that, you might be thinking I'm going to say 50. You might be thinking maybe 30. It's 26. There are 26 women serving the United States Senate, and that's the most we've ever had in our nation's history. We need more women in leadership, and not just in Washington. Um, we are barely a third of the state legislatures around the country. Almost half the country has never had a woman governor, and we've never had an African-American woman governor ever, anywhere. And what's so impactful is that when women are at the table, when we have committee rooms and meeting rooms that look more like the population that this country has, we get better policies. Some of the research that I've done and that others have done shows that, you know, when uh, women are at the table, they are more likely to uh, work across the aisle with their counterparts. They're more likely to pass more bills and introduce more legislation. They're also more likely to focus on issues that matter to women and families. So education and child care and paid family leave, the environment. These are all things that women tend to focus on when they're in office. And I think June and I, um, you know, fundamentally believe this to be true, that when we have a government that looks more like the people it serves, we're going to have better policies about our bodies, our planet, and our future generation of children that are going to occupy it. So we want to do everything we can to make sure that that more women uh, are on that ballot and that they win. So you had the breakdown of, in your book, why you thought it was important for women to run for office. And I found myself agreeing with all of it, but also thinking of very prominent exceptions to everything that you were saying. Sure. For example, when you were talking about how women govern for women, I started thinking about some of the most prominent politicians on the right side of the political spectrum. 
your Sarah Palin's, your Betsy DeVos's, your Elaine Chow's, your Nikki Haley's, Kellyanne Conway, Joan Ernst, not exactly paragons of feminism, right? And I'm wondering if, is it really a gender dynamic or is it just a right-left dynamic? I mean, our part, there's no escaping some of our partisan divides in this country. I think we are so entrenched in our kind of tribalism, these and ours, that that is, plays a big part in this. But at the same time, what we don't want to do, and we certainly tried to avoid this in the book, and we even call it out, is we don't want to fall, you know, with everything that I just said, which was really smart, I'm sure, um, is that we don't want to fall into an essentialist trap where just because they're women, we believe them to lead a certain way or to think a certain way or to vote a certain way. You named a few. I mean, we all could name women who we've seen lead in ways that we wish maybe that they would lead differently. You know, I think when we start talking in terms of essentialism, that's where we run into trouble. However, everything that I just talked about, you know, them sponsoring more bills and working across the aisle, that's just the facts. That's just what the data shows over years and years of combing through votes and, and sponsorships. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, if you're someone who kind of is tired of politics as usual in Washington, you know, from my perspective, the answer is voting for women because they're the ones who are going to actually move the needle and get things done. I mean, let's not forget, it's women who actually got us out of some pretty big jams, like the budget shutdown twice. Right. So, you know, I'm... I'm always looking when there are crises, where are the women and what are they doing? Because usually they're the ones who are going to get us out of it. I think so, too. I mean, I'm sure you're not implying that male ego gets in the way of good governance. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) sitting here, you know, I I mean, I think you're just telling when you see photos coming out of Washington or state capitals or even committee room boardrooms, even, you know, this is true on the corporate side. And you don't see any women around um, or any people who don't look like a majority of pretty much just white men. Um, I think you should raise questions for all of us about you know, who's making the decisions and whose voices are there and whose voices are more importantly not there. Right. That makes sense. So let's kind of move on to the the hurdles, I guess, of getting women to run for office. And it was the one that I just voiced at the beginning here was, you know, this idea, am I qualified to run? This uh, The idea that you mentioned in your book about, you know, women don't even think about it or they lack an opportunity. Uh, so can you kind of expand on that and how does it really apply in the political arena? Sure. So I think there are, um, there are certainly some structural hurdles in, that stand in the way sometimes for women running for office. And we can talk about those too. One of those is fundraising, which I know you want to talk about. Another one is voting structures and sometimes the way in which we get on ballots. But there are some internal hurdles as well. And one of this is feeling of not feeling qualified. And You know, there have been research after research study about uh, this question where we ask women candidates or potential women candidates, you know, do you feel qualified to run for office? And we include one of them in the book because it's so telling, I think, about the problem, which is, you know, a group of men and a group of women were asked, do you feel qualified to run for office? And a majority of the women said no. Now, of the men who said I am not qualified to run for office. These are the guys who put their hands up and self-selected and said, not for me. I, I don't meet the bar. They, a majority of that group, still said they would run for office. 
they still said, I'll throw my hat in the ring. Why not? You know, well, a majority of women who said, no, we're like, of course not. <laughs> so women just, I'm women just need to be more ambitious, right? That, that's what I'm hearing. Like, this here. sounds like every day at work. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's really about like failing upwards. Right. Um, but I think, you know, the, when you, when that's the stat that we're confronted with, that this is the pool of candidates, you know, guys who are saying, I'm not qualified at all, but why the heck not? Then I say to the women out there thinking about it, like, absolutely, girl, like, go for it. You know, the water's warm. But I'm not surprised when I see these stats, too, because it's, you know, women haven't been, you know, behind podiums. We haven't been, we haven't been, um, you know, at the front of the class. We haven't been in the halls of Congress. You know, we haven't been leaders in the same way that men have for generations in this country. So, you know, the old expression is you can't be what you can't see. And I think that's what we're seeing here with this feeling of not feeling qualified. So to that end, what we wanted to do in the book is really break down, you know, just who is representing us. And so we looked at the professions um, that the members of the 115th Congress, so the last Congress that was in session, you know, we looked to see what were the jobs that they had um, before they they ran for Congress. And, you know, there are their lawyers, which, you know, we all need them. God love them. And they should run for office. Um, but there were also teachers and nurses and there were farmers and social workers and veterans and there was radio show hosts and there were car salesmen even you know there are all kinds of people with all different backgrounds who find their way to running for office and we wanted especially with this chapter which is called am i qualified uh, we wanted every woman reading it to feel like the answer was yes and that they are qualified today, whatever their resume looks like, you know, it may not fit on a really clean eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. They might not have a ton of degrees on the wall, but that they are ready now and that their experience is their expertise. What connects them to their community? What drives them to make change and where they see it needs to be made? That is what's going to connect with voters um, and ultimately uh, help them win races. Not, you know, a, a series of letters behind their name or, you know, years of experience in professional careers. It is exactly where they are today that makes them experts and ready to run. So let's say someone is ready to run. They have to assemble an inner circle, right? They have to figure out who's going to help them run. You need a campaign manager, a finance director, a treasurer, a communications director, a research director, digital director, um, Legal compliance so advisor, directors. consultants, all the directors, right? Mm -hmm. You're a woman out there who wants to run. How do you find those people? How do you figure out who's going to help you? How do you start when you probably don't have a lot of money to start? Well, it's a great question because um, I think sometimes we feel, I think many women feel like the act of running for office is uh, something they're going to have to take on by themselves. Um, and so to your point is running for office is not a solo activity. It is a fully team sport. Um, and the question is, where do you find that team? Now, I think it depends on what level you're running for. You know, many of the offices, the jobs you just named, um, you're going to have those in your congressional races, in your Senate races, your gubernatorial or your statewide races, you know, your big campaigns. Sure. You're absolutely going to have those. And there are lots of people and professionals and committees and organizations dedicated to helping you find those people. But if you're running on your local level and you're running for school board, state legislature, city council, sheriff, judge, 
comptroller, all things you can run for, you know, some of those people are people in your network already. And so, you know, one of the things we wanted to do, because women tend to not have been in the same financial or power or political networks that men have built and perpetuated for generations in this country, we tried in the book to say, okay, if you're not working in the C-suite right now, if you are a junior associate at a law firm, if you are a stay-at-home mom, if you are a student, how do you find these people? How do you build that network to not only help you win, but also raise the money and all the things you're going to do to need to do to win? And so to that end, we thought, okay, let's reframe those powerful networks, those the networks that women have been kind of kept out of. And let's think about where we already have community, where we already are. And so whether that's your sorority, your professional network, your bar association, uh, your kickball league, your church, your synagogue, your mosque, you know, maybe your book club, hopefully you're reading this book in your book club, um, <laughs> but wherever women are naturally, that is where we can start to find some of these people. And so when you think about who your campaign manager is, that is someone who will not sugarcoat the truth. That is someone who is in your corner 100%. That is someone who you don't need to be friends with, but by God, you're going to spend a lot of time with them. So you got to make sure that someone you like. But maybe it is also someone who has a lot of experience in politics or seems to know what's happening at the city council more than you do. Um you might be thinking about who's going to help me raise this money. Well, there's probably someone in your life who is already either naturally gathering people for causes or organizing events. Um, and these events can just be happy hours, but there's probably someone in your life who's constantly kind of bringing people together. That might be someone to think about for a finance director, or at least someone to start hosting events for you. Or there might be someone who's a, you know, a great fundraiser for a local charity or a church or a cause that they care about. You know, these are the people you can tap into to start asking some basic questions about how to expand your network, how to make an ask, but also how to start bringing in the resources you're going to need to build a successful campaign. Okay. So my wife, for example, raises money for the Art Institute for a Living, Alexis, when you decide to make your run. She can be your treasurer. <laughs> okay, got it. Awesome. See, Check. this sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Got one. You Already know, making I mean, the connections. Field director. Yeah, there's probably someone in your life too who like knows. There's probably a nosy neighbor or someone who knows what everyone's business is in the neighborhood. That's a great field director, right? That's the person who oh, can the show nosy you person. Well, I think that that's my. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they know who's voting for who. I guarantee it. Um, so there are these people in our lives that we can tap into. And it doesn't have to be big jobs, but it could be small things like helping, you know, design a logo or um, you, know, you probably know someone maybe who's uh, a good writer. Maybe they can help write a speech or two. You know, these are things that we can ask for help. We just have to start asking for the help that we need. I think asking is a big was a big piece of this. And that chapter on asking for help and asking for money was something that kind of hit me because I'm just like, oh, I don't like to ask. You know, you, nobody likes to ask people for money, really. But the way it's you... It's the worst. Yeah, it's just it's awkward and it feels like they're paying you, you know. I mean, we have to do it all day, oh, every day. Okay. But, uh, and, but I thought the way you portrayed it in the book, and if you could kind of talk about that, you know, framing it in terms of the cause or the issues or, you know, what what's happening with that uh, was interesting. Exactly. So... We hear this from so many women, and fundraising is a is a big hurdle 
to women running for office. We know it costs a lot of money to run for office in this country. We also know that women have a harder time raising that money, especially women of color, too, um, have a harder time raising that money. And so anything we can do to help more women make that ask is really important. And so uh, one big way to kind of get over that feeling of raising money is to, again, reframe it completely. You're not asking for you. You don't put your hand out and are kind of begging people for money for you. This is about offering someone a chance to invest in your campaign, in your vision for your community, in your solutions to the problems you're seeing. And when you flip the script like that, when you change it from, you know, please give me money to I'm offering you a chance to be a part of something, that's a completely different scenario, right? And it certainly does take the onus off of the focus off of you in a very personal sense, but it also, you know, puts the ball in their court. Um, You're seeing this, I think, be really successful on the presidential race. Uh, Right now, there are some fundraisers who they call their donors investors even, you know, and I think it's for this exact reason. You want people to literally buy in to what you're selling. Um, We also offer some other tips in the book too, that I think, you know, when it comes to making uh, what we call the hard ask, which is, uh, you know, you're asking for a number. You're not just asking, can you please help with my campaign? You're asking for $200. You're asking for $500. You're asking for $5,000. You're making that hard ask because you're specific and you know what you want. But in making that hard ask, we also offer some tips that I think can apply to You know, I think all of us in the professional world who might be asking for a raise or that promotion or that new responsibility or whatever it is that we're kind of getting up the gumption to maybe approach our boss or or someone uh, in power, the trick is to make that hard ask and then to be silent, to be as still and as silent as humanly possible, which I think for a lot of people, myself included, we want to fill the void. We want to not have an awkward silence. But, you know, especially if you're over the phone, this doesn't work in person. Uh, but if you're over the phone, you know, do whatever you can to stay quiet. For me, I bite down on a pencil. I'll, you know, take a sip of water. Um, I'll do whatever I can to stay quiet because you want that other person to respond. You don't want to give them another reason to, to say no. You want to wait to see what they say and then you can counter. So little pro tip, stay quiet. And on that fantastic cliffhanger, we'll take our first break. Need a lawyer, Steve? I do. You look like you need a lawyer. The Chicago Bar Association Lawyer Referral Service has been making referrals for over 70 years to attorneys who have been thoroughly screened for experience in over 40 different areas of the law. Call 312-554-2001 or visit us online at www.chicagobar.org backslash LRS. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So, Katie, we were talking about raising money, which is everything in politics today. And certainly anyone who is in office or who wants to run for office has to deal with the fact that they're going to spend most of their days asking for money. But for those who are just starting out and, you know, that ideal woman candidate that we've been talking about, she's probably not going to be able 
to raise a lot of money upfront right away, right? She's going to have to self-finance at least at the beginning. How do you do that? Well, this is a great question because it's so important. And what we try to really stress in the book is to remember that you are going to raise this money. We go through a whole process in the book about trying to identify once you understand where you're running and what you're running for, uh, what your ideal budget would be. So what is your target? What are you trying to raise towards? Once you have that number, it can feel daunting. You could be, you know, even for a local, 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 local race, we could be talking about a couple thousand dollars. We could be talking about, you know, 20,000. We could, and then, you know, if you go up and up and up, you're in the millions all of a sudden. And that can feel, um, the weight of that could feel so daunting that it turn could turn you off. Right. And what we want to do is make sure that we understand that you're raising that money. You do not have to have that money in your bank account. Now, does it help to have a rich uncle? Sure. It can absolutely help uh, to have a rich uncle. But, you know, with wealth, that can come with some some issues as well. I mean, we've all seen wealthy candidates who have issues with um, investments and conflicts of interest and needing to divest things or sell things or, you know, who they've gotten money from in the oh, past. I think, I think all those rules um, are out the window for the past three years, don't you? <laughs> Um, I, I mean, those are nice we, ideas. I think but. the voting public, uh, is, I think, is more attuned to these sensitivities now. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't think many people knew what emoluments were yeah. before. <laughs> True. So, but I do think it's important that for a woman thinking about running for office that you're going to raise this money. Um, does it mean you might end up spending some of your own? You could possibly, but it's so important to remember that you don't have to spend that money. And we we interviewed women candidates uh, and elected officials in this book. Um, we interviewed Ayanna Presley and Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. We interviewed Columbus City Councilwoman Liz Brown and uh, former Colorado House Speaker uh, Crisanta Duran and Jenny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle. And one of the things that we heard a lot from these women, especially Anna Presley, talked about when she first ran for city council in Boston, she cashed out her 401k. Right. And if you talk to her today, she would tell you not to do that. Right. Um, because at the time, it felt like the only way that she could make this dream a reality. And um, it was fascinating to hear her look back on that choice and to think, I shouldn't have done that because. Mm you know, you risk so much when you when you put your financial security on the line. But I think this dovetails nicely, I think, into a topic that I know you wanted to talk about, too, which was uh, personal baggage. And certainly financial issues fall into that bucket for sure. Right. So it like in the good old days, a person, almost always men, right, because they're good old days, could run for office. And unless there was something that um, was considered particularly bad in their background, they would run without too much attention being paid by the public to their personal picadillos. So, you know, I'm thinking of Jefferson's relationship with Sammy Hemings, JFK womanizing LBJ's womanizing, Grover Cleveland's womanizing, uh, FDR using a wheelchair. Heck, I think Andrew Jackson was a bigamist, wasn't he? And he definitely dueled with people. Right. Yeah, he like right. tried to kill people. Right, but no big his, deal. That was not time. a big deal. Yeah, like not. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> That's not the case anymore. Everything is on the internet, even stuff you didn't put on the internet, even stuff that you thought you removed from the internet, stuff that 
is just in a computer that's connected to the internet is going to be out there. It's going to be found by Apple Research, right? Mm -hmm. That is, I think, for a lot of qualified people, but reasonable people, one of the scariest things about running for office because everybody has skeletons in their closet, right? How do you address yep, that? Yep. Well, it's a great question. And I think, um, let me say two things from the start. One, I got my start in politics as an opposition researcher. Oh, perfect. Um, so I feel uniquely qualified to tell you what is and is not on the internet. Feel free to gossip. <laughs> <laughs> um, but secondly, I think this is so important right now because we've just gone through the very public episode with Congresswoman, former Congresswoman Katie Hill. Right. Um, and I think we heard from so many women after that, that this is a real fear that what happened to her could happen to them. And so much of our lives are online. So much of our lives are in the, in our hands and our devices that it's really important to understand just what's out there and what's not and what's accessible and what's not. You know, I think in the book, what we try to do is break it into two kind of buckets. The first bucket, and I should say that this, um, this chapter is titled, What About Those Pesky Nudes? <laughs> because uh, I feel like this is something that uh, certainly I know so many women think about. And, you know, our generation is living, you know, came on the Internet with Facebook. This next generation is in a whole different world. Uh, yeah. when it comes to um, kind of what's shared and what's accessible. So it's so important. But there's two categories. The first is, what are you putting out onto the internet? What are you putting out into the world? And that's something that you can control. So certainly starting with social media, thinking about doing a deep dive into every tweet, every Facebook post, um, every Insta post, every dating website. You know, if you got a Tinder profile that's just hanging out there, it might be time to clean it up. Like, these are all the places where we do put data about ourselves online. And if you're thinking about running for office, put out the curated version of yourself that is that candidate. You know, this is a time where you can actually shape and control what's out there. Kate, does that cleanup now work for things that were out there in the past? Like as an opposition researcher, would you still be able to find, you know, old posts? I mean, listen, Alexis has a very concerned look on her face. Every tweet. I mean, you can do this. You can, there are tools that will help you download every every tweet or every Facebook post. You can, or you can just spend you know a weekend with yourself and just really clean clean through it. And June and I say in the book, where the rule is, if it's like old milk, you sniff it twice and it's still bad, just throw it away. Yeah. Just delete it. It's okay to delete old posts because yeah. you know if it was something that you wrote in college or if it was something that. You know, you think about it now and you look at it, you're like, that's not funny or I, it was inappropriate or that's not the view I have now of the issue I was talking about then. It's okay to delete it. Right. It's not like a legal record, right? You know? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, there's no spoilation issues yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to, so that's social media, right? And we need to be really careful about what we're putting out in the world on that front. But then there are other records about you online, that you should be aware of. And that includes certainly legal records. If you've been arrested, if you have outstanding warrants or parking tickets, these are things that you want to clear up and, and certainly figure out how you can get either legal advice from a friend or your lawyer or an accountant to help you um, sort through, you know, what's what and what needs to be taken care of before you take that next step. Having those things, so having legal issues or having personal debt, you know, 
we think that these things are out there because we're probably going to have to report them in some sort of personal financial disclosure as we get up, you know, gear up to run, that people are going to think that they're disqualifying. In the book, we say absolutely that shouldn't be the case because there are millions of people who probably also are experiencing the same thing as you. And it could be that connection that actually speaks to the problem that you're facing and might bring people into your story. I'll give you two examples. One is Congresswoman Katie Porter. Katie Porter is a lawyer from California, and she was running for Congress, and um, she had been a victim of domestic violence, and she had had a restraining order put on her uh, ex-husband, and her opponent's party used that against her and called her restraining order Porter. And instead of trying to ignore it or brush it aside, she faced that head on and really, I think, challenged the race and made everyone think about just how wrong it was that they were using that against her, but also the issue that she faced and so many women and families face with domestic violence. Another example is Stacey Abrams when she was running for governor. You know, she had personal debt. She was carrying the health care costs for some of her family members. She had college student loans, like so many of us. And, you know, she was getting attacked for it. And she put an op-ed in Forbes magazine and talked about, you know, yes, I have this personal debt, um, like so many millions of people who do. This is why. But it should not disqualify me from running for governor of Georgia. In fact, it should make me more qualified because I'm having the same struggles and I know the solutions and I know the way out for not just me, but so many other people like me in the state of Georgia. So you're saying make weaknesses into strengths by making them campaign issues, essentially. Exactly. There's a way that you can um, co-opt these issues to make them part of your narrative and not something that you feel like you have to hide in a closet. Um, it's when we hide things that voters are distrustful. It's when we bring light and voice and story to things that we connect with people. I think that was a really empowering piece of the book, too, thinking about how to manipulate those or, you know, move them into just you know, fronting them, saying, this is what I have, this is it, this is my story. Another piece that you have in the book, too, was, you know, how do you, you have this personal baggage, you kind of get through that issue, you know, get your hands around it. And then how does this work with your everyday life, right? A lot of women, you have children or family members that they're caring for, you have a full-time job. Man, uh, baby husbands. Right, oh, yes, exactly. Man, baby husbands, for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, how do you, how does it fit in? How do you find time to campaign? I mean, woof, right? I think this is something that we fought with our publisher because we wanted, this was a giant piece of the book and we fought to keep it as big as we could because it's so important. Yeah. Uh, it's called IRL and basically in real life, how does this work? Right. Women are doing so much. Um, we are the majority of caretakers in this country, uh, yet we don't earn as much as we should. We are the majority of minimum wage earners in this country, um, and we are usually holding multiple jobs, some of that being paid or unpaid labor. I think, you know, you add running for office on top of that, just like it's an easy thing, and it's incredibly hard to imagine just in the day, how does this work? So we broke it up into four pieces, the first being time. 
do you have the time to run for office? And the first thing you need to do to think about that is how am I spending my time now? That was uh, a cool so exercise. June and I do a t- yeah. yeah, we do a yeah. time log and you know, mine was in an Excel sheet. June's was narrative. That's fine. There's no shame in an Excel sheet. Um, and, you know, just breaking it down over a two week period, you know, how are you spending your time between work, you know, fun, family care, self care, all of these things. And then you can start to see, okay, what could give now in June's case, she works kind of irregular hours, more of a we call her for lack of a better phrase, a gig worker. And so, you know, when she was looking at it, you know, she came out of that time exercise and thought, okay, I could give two hours a week to running for office. And she, she asked me, she said, Kate, is that enough? And I said, no, frankly, it's not enough. Um, how many when hours at my time, Kate, how many, I apologize for ahead. interrupting. I was just, that raises a question in my mind. If you're running for like a local office, a first step kind of run, how many hours a week does that take? Well, this is a great question. And it's one that we, we sort of tackle in a chapter before that about where you're trying to figure out the budget and where you're going to run. Because so much of what that answer is, is about the size of race and the size of the place right. that you're running in. So you could imagine the city running for city council in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from, that race might look different than running for city council in New York City. Um, running for school board of a small school district in Washington state could look very different than running for school board in Austin, Texas, you know, one of the largest school districts. So, you know, it's important to kind of, it's not apples to apples necessarily. What it is, is figuring out kind of the, the size and scope of where you're running. If you're running for, let's say, you know, June lives in Los Angeles, if she's running for school board in Los Angeles, which is something that she kind of talked about, that's a big race. And, you know, that race could cost in the millions. And we're talking about school board. So two hours a week is certainly (laughs) not enough for that. And I work more of a nine to five job and I work for the federal government, which uh, precludes me from doing a lot of the activities that you need to do to run for office because of the Hatch Act. So I would need to leave my job to run for office and which kind of goes into that next question, which is about money. You know, do you have the financial security that you would need to run for office? Now, this is also a question about your career and your job because you might be able, depending on your job, you might be able to work part time or reduced hours to use maybe like half of your day to run for office. Or like in my case, or, you know, if you're active military, you can't actually run for office and and keep your job or you're running for an office that requires you just all of your time is going to be doing your campaign. So you actually cannot have another job at the same time. So how do you make money? How are you financially secure in the midst of that? And so we do a budget exercise where you kind of think about, okay, what am I what are my expenses right now? How could I make this work for a certain period of time if I had to? Um, can I talk to my employer about possibly running, you know, running for office and keeping my job or taking a leave of absence and coming back to it if my campaign isn't successful? These are really important questions. And on top of all of that, we've added a discussion in there because I think it's so important for women to be cognizant of this fact, which is that a lot of offices and public servants in this country do not make a living wage. Um, you know, we think about Congress and, you know, the, the annual salary there is about um, $174,000 a year, which 
is they're doing fine, right? But you look at some of the more local offices in this country, and some of them, you know, pay a dollar a year. Some of them go unpaid. Some of them are so low paying that it functionally requires only people who have some sort of high paying yet flexible scheduled profession, like a lawyer maybe, or some some doctors, um, to be able to functionally take that office, you know? I mean, if you're if you're making a dollar a year in a new, new Hampshire state legislature, how do you make money the rest of the time to feed yourself and your family? You know, you really have to be able to figure that out. So sell, sell your that votes. That was the second piece. <laughs> Just turn, turn your office. I mean, come on. It wouldn't be the first time. So let's say that, uh, let's say that you know someone who would make an outstanding uh, female candidate, Alexis, name that pops in my head. What could I do to support someone like that or to encourage them to make a run, get involved? I mean, the first thing I would say is, Alexis, you should buy this book. <laughs> or here is this book, Alexis, for your birthday. This is wonderful. Because <laughs> um, I do think this book is really a great way, if you don't know what to say, it's a great gift to start that person thinking about it. Um, the other things that we can do, and this is a question that we actually get a lot um, on the book tour, which is, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to run, but I know somebody should, or how do I help other women run? There are a couple easy ways. Number one is you could you could vote for them. You know, voting for them is an easy way to show that you support women candidates. You can also donate money. You can also donate your time. You know, behind every woman candidate, there is a legion of probably other women and men who are donating energy and time and expertise and, you know, just willingness to walk the dog, pick up the dry cleaning, make sure that there's Diet Coke in the fridge or whatever she drinks is on hand. Um, making sure that, you know, she needs to get out for a walk that you're there. You know, there are ways in which we can show up for the friends in our lives or the people who are running for office. So that's certainly one of them. And then the other thing that we can do is we can all start kind of interrupting some of the sexist uh, and racist bullshit that we hear about women candidates. And we, we include in the book a cheat sheet to interrupting sexist and racist bullshit. Um, and it's meant to be cut out of the book and taken with you uh, for when you find yourself in a situation uh, where you're hearing things like, I just don't like her or her voice is shrill. She doesn't smile enough. She doesn't represent me. I don't want to have a beer with her. She doesn't represent my my interests or my community. She's playing the race card. She's playing the woman card. I mean, I could go on and on and on, right? It's not her turn. All of these things are, are things that we hear about women candidates. And a thing that we can do is start to interrupt some of that language with, uh, and we provide some possible responses because sometimes we don't know what to say, whether we're seeing it online or hearing it from a friend or a coworker or seeing it in the media even. And so when we start responding with some basic questions, like tell me more about that, or why do you think that, or um, have you donated to her if you don't think she's raising enough money, things like this can help not only push back about the criticism of one woman candidate, but can actually start to break down stereotypes about all women candidates. And that could be a really powerful thing. And with that piece of neighborly wisdom, we'll take our second break. This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by courtfiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. Courtfiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, 
focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. Courtfiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. And we're back. So, Kate, we like to close every episode with a game we call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. The rules are simple. Lexus and I have done a little bit of research on the internets. We found a real law that, well, is real but shouldn't be. And we've made another one up, and we're going to pull you and each other to see if we can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Are you ready to play? I am ready. All right. Alexis, why don't you lead us off? Oh, you go first. You want me to go first? All right, I'll go first. All right. So, since we were talking about... No, it's a, <laughs> since we were talking about sexist bullshit, I'll start off with some of that. In South Carolina, it's a misdemeanor for a man to seduce an unmarried woman with a false promise of marriage. That's option number one. What? Wait, hold on, hold on. Okay. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's How not. I don't know. That? Okay, okay, okay. All right. Okay. But okay. that's 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 the law. Maybe. Okay. Option number two. In Oregon. It's illegal to practice in the occult arts, including fortune-telling, astrology, mesmerism, clairvoyance, etc., whereby an attempt or pretense is made to tell the future, to analyze the past, to analyze a person's character, or even just to give advice. Kate, which oh, one's real? Which one's fake? Oh, man. Okay. I, I, I think... Okay. I think South Carolina must be f- no. I think Oregon must be fake because that's that's bonkers. Of course, people f- tell fortunes in Oregon. Um, yeah, I think I think Oregon is fake. All right, Alexis, thoughts? I think it was too long. It's too long. <laughs> yeah, meaning the, the fortune telling one. Meaning it's fake. Meaning yeah. that's the fake one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is going to come as a shock to anyone who's ever been to Portland, but the Oregon one is real and still a law. The South Carolina option was a law, but it was repealed, get this, in 2016. Pretty recently. Yeah. Yeah. I bet it was a woman who repealed it, too. I bet a woman found it, and she's like, Oh, no. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's what she spent all of her time. With. I mean, the the Oregon one shocked me because I mean so Portland, like yeah. you you trip over those. You, know, you places. had me at mesmerized. Would you say mesmer? What was mesmerism? It? Like, yeah, that one. I was like, "That's not real." <laughs> well, now you know. Oh man, man! Wow, this is a fun game. I like this. All right, Alexis. This is going to be more fun. You're so right. I kept mine to Illinois, Chicago specifically. Okay. Um, 
number one is uh, the first option is that it's forbidden to fish while sitting on a giraffe's neck. It's forbidden to fish while sitting on a giraffe's neck. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. And the second, these are not. Okay. The second one. We have zoos. (laughs) <laughs> is, we're, not, we're not barbarians they're definitely I was thinking Lincoln Park Zoo right come on you just sit on top of it anyway um, and then the second is that uh, no cannon or piece of artillery shall be discharged or fired off in any public way uh, except with permission of the city council Kate you're our guest why don't you go well, first I mean I got it the giraffe. I mean, of course, no cannon can be set off. So let right? me tell you the story. Wait, 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 wait! You can't tell us yet. You can't okay. tell us yet. Calm down. We're still, we're still guessing. Wait, did you just give it away? I feel no, like yeah, no, totally I think she kind of just gave it away. But Kate, please continue. I mean, yeah, I think, I think the cannon thing is real. I think the giraffe thing is totally bonkers and fake. That's my, that's my, that's my guess. I'm going to go with that, and I'm going to say that it's because Chicago was founded with Fort Dearborn, which had lots of artillery. Oh, good, good point. But the, So the let me talk to you about this. The research, so I was doing research on this, right, because Jen said I had to shepherdize the law, right? You do. She, she was gotten trouble We're very for meticulous not shepherdizing here. it. We so get I'm, angry you know, comments from people. Right, and I'm like Googling, what can I do? And then, uh, you know, the fish was one. It was listed as an internet option that it was forbidden to fish. Well, and I was just like, what? It's on the internet. So then I go through, you know, the, all the code, the city code. <laughs> While we're in another meeting before this, I can't find giraffe in the city code. No. Code at all. So, so. It's... you guys are right. It was it was an easy one, but it was about research, right? Yeah. It's I mean, all about research. I like that you went. Through, I mean, this is this is why this podcast is great because like a lawyer would go through the code. That's yeah, like, okay. I was like, I can't get like a, on a podcast. A solid lawyer. <laughs> and you know, in Alexis's no. defense, usually the more absurd it is, the more true it is. Yeah, that's been my experience. Right. But it was kind of tricky. Yeah. It was kind of tricky. I was like, oh dang, what if the giraffe thing is actually the correct one? I mean, but, we you know, we can't be like you know setting off cannons, right? But we had one once where, you know, it's actually illegal in this town in Arizona for a donkey to get in a bathtub. That's a law. <laughs> so you never know. They look it up. But we're gonna have we're gonna have to leave it there. That's our show for today. I wanna thank our guest, Kate Black, for this interesting and hopefully inspiring conversation. The book is Represent the Woman's Guide to Running for Office and Changing the World. And according to no less than Hillary Clinton, it's a wonderful resource for women thinking of running for office. I also want to thank my co-hosts, Alexis Crawford-Douglas, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Ricardo Islas on Sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. They're the best in the biz. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. You can also rate us and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. (laughs) 